Hey, it's Matt Bowles. If you want to hang out with me in person, I'm going to be at the Latino Travel Fest in Elizabeth, New Jersey, May 31st to June 2nd. And I've got a 15% discount for you to join me. Just go to themaverickshow.com slash Latino. That's L-A-T-I-N-O. There you're going to see your 15% discounted ticket. There are going to be multiple guests from The Maverick Show attending, so you'll be able to hang out with all of us in person. You do not need to be Latino in order to attend Everyone is welcome. Again, get your discounted ticket at themaverickshow.com slash Latino. And as soon as you do, send me a DM on Instagram at Matt Bowles Maverick. Let me know that you're coming so that we can make plans to link up in person. And now here's a clip of what's coming up on today's episode. And he said to my wife, these guys are not cops. They were dressed like they were cops, but they were not cops. And so he just kind of let the car in front of him go a little bit further ahead. He started to inch the car up. And he said, okay, when I say duck, you guys duck. So he starts to back the car up and then he starts backing into the street. And the guys see him. And he, so he's whipping the car out in reverse. And the guy comes out and he sees them. He goes, stop, stop. And he just stepped on the gas in reverse, swerving the car from one side of the road to the other. My wife and daughter and the other lady laying down in the car, and they just opened fire on us, like with AK-47. most interesting real estate investors, entrepreneurs, and world travelers, and learn the strategies and tactics they use to succeed. And now, here's your host, Matt Bowles. Hey, everybody, it's Matt Bowles. Welcome to the Maverick Show. My guest today is Bill Manassero. He was elected to public office at the age of 18. He became a corporate VP at age 21 and then started his own business and gravitated into the tech space where he was eventually hired by the legendary CEO, Meg Whitman. If you don't know who she is, among her many accomplishments, she's the one who took eBay from a $5.7 million in revenue company to an $8 billion a year revenue company in just 10 years. And then when the tech bubble burst in the late 90s, Bill pivoted again and became a professional musician, dropped three albums, and toured the world with his family, eventually moving with his family to Haiti for 12 years, where they established Child Hope International, which was comprised of medical clinics, orphanages, schools, and entrepreneurial training. Bill also now hosts the Old Dogs REI Network podcast. He has been a real estate investor since 2014, buying his first property at age 58. His podcast and his work today, back in the United States where he's currently based, is focused on providing education to seniors 
on how to build wealth through income properties. Bill, welcome to the show. Hey, Matt. It's great to be here with you, buddy. So good to have you here, my man. We are, just to set the scene for people, we are in Venice Beach, California, and this is good to be back. I was in LA for about seven years, one of my favorite cities in the United States for sure. I was even specifically on Venice Beach for a part of that, so it's uh, good to be back in the old hood, and I know you're a Californian as well. You bet. Yeah, born and raised. <laughs> That's awesome, man. I um, So I'm, I'm super excited to do this episode. You've got a lot of amazingly interesting things in terms of your life stories, but I think where I want to start is to just... I know music has been a huge part of your life throughout all of the different choices and pivots and life experiences you've had. Music has really been a, a constant for you. And I was wondering if you can just maybe start to talk about that in terms of what does music mean to you? What has it meant to you? And maybe just start talking a little bit about you know your life story with regard to music. Well, sure. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it it is... Uh, an integral part of of everything I've done, you know, for the most part. But it actually started. Actually, it was a traumatic incident in my life. My, my mom passed when I was thirteen years old, and so it was just. I was the youngest of four kids. It was a real hard thing for me to deal with. And and part of my way of dealing with it is I, I just I was sitting in my room, just trying to cope with, you know, why, you know, what, what happened. And I took up guitar and I started writing some little songs that just kind of helped express the way I was feeling. And it really, you know, helped me to deal with this, this crisis in my life. And I was it's just self-taught and I just started you know, playing and learning to play. And as time went on, you know, I started to interact with people with music and enjoyed singing with people, uh, got into bands, you know, it was the sixties and everybody wanted to be a rock and roller, you know? And so, you know, I just, I just kind of evolved into this rock and roll guitarist and that's kind of how I got started. And, you know, it just kind of went on from there. So let's talk about that. I mean, at different points in your life, we mentioned in the bio, you got elected to public office at 18, and then you went into the corporate world and rose very quickly to becoming a corporate VP. And then you gravitated into the tech space. And maybe you can talk a little bit about that in terms of you know what that experience was like when Meg Whitman approached you and you had the opportunity to work for her. And I know you mentioned to me that you had at times rubbed elbows with Mark Cuban and some of those kind of folks who were who were really enormous and coming up in the tech space at the time. So maybe you could talk a little bit about what that was like. And then that was right on the verge of the tech bubble. Right. And then what happened when that burst and, and, and what you did? Yeah. Well, first off, you know, I wasn't actually approached by Meg Whitman. She was part of the team that founded this organization. I was recruited, though, by the, you know, the CEO. It wasn't Meg at the time. She was on on our board, but I was approached and asked if I could come in to help them with the the marketing aspect of this new business portal that they are putting together. And at that time, I was also heading up an organization in Southern California that was comprised mainly of software companies in the Southern California region. And the internet was just really starting to happen at that time. So a big part of what we were doing was putting together these great software companies, which were becoming internet companies now, or 
some division of their software company was moving into the internet and we were putting them together with venture capitalists and helping these companies. You know, we wanted to grow that whole industry in Southern Cal because, you know, Silicon Valley had, had everybody and everything was happening there, but we were trying to build this, this core here. And in that process, this new business was happening. So I was for about six years, I was helping software companies and, and internet companies kind of come together and with venture capitalists and trying to help them grow their businesses. So uh, in that process, I, I met these folks that eventually hired me away to, to on this startup. And I was anxious to kind of move on at that point. So it's kind of, I, I was looking at the stock options that they were offering us. And I said, okay, this is my opportunity. I get the stock options. I, I put them in the bank and I can do whatever I want to do, which is kind of like every entrepreneur's little dream, right? You know, you're going to get that that big nest egg or that cash flow that's going to allow you to, to live your life the way you want to live it. And so that was that was the motivation here. But you know, surprisingly, <laughs> you know, I, I was I was committed for a year to this organization. I figured after that time, the stock, and I was just watching the stock options just go through the ceiling. And I go, this is exactly what I wanted. And then the bubble burst, and my stock options weren't even good for you know toilet paper. Basically, <laughs> there was like, okay, all right, back to square one. And, uh, and that's kind of where that where that went. Then that was a real shift in, in a lot of the things that I was doing. Well, I think that's a really important lesson in a life experience to have. For example, I can relate to that to the extent that I decided to start a real estate investment company in 2007, Bill. Ouch. That was a that was a great idea. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, wow, look at this. The market's amazing. Everything's incredible. This is going to be great, you know? And my business partner, Valerie, and I, you know, left our jobs and founded Maverick Investor Group. And then 2008 happened. Oh, <laughs> man. We're so, really good with timing here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so, but I think the way that people handle those things and the way that you assess the situation and say, okay, clearly there's a, you know, something, you know, I need to pivot or I need to adjust what I'm doing, you know, and then you make your next move. And that for me is always really interesting to learn about how people handle those situations when all your eggs are in and then all of a sudden, you know, the bottom falls out and then what do you do next? And so I've had a lot of pivots in my life, whether it was away from you know, my job and going the entrepreneurial route or at different stages in the real estate cycle or all that kind of stuff. And so I'm super interested, you know, to hear about your next move though. So the tech space bottoms out, the bubble bursts, everything goes south. And then what did you decide to do from there? Well, it was a major shift just to work up to that point. I had been on the corporate side, like you saw, you know, mentioned, uh, I started very young. I was very involved in, in corporate uh, organizations. Then I, I went entrepreneurial and I started my own advertising, public relations. Firm. So, I, so I'd, I'd done a lot of things sort of prior to that happening. And there was just a real shift and a lot of major changes in my life. And one of which, you know, was that you know, I just really had to take a look at what, what, what was my meaning of life, period. And that just kind of changed me a lot. I ended up looking at, you know, the things that were going on in my life and uh, went into full-time ministry, okay, after that happened. And I had been a musician, as I mentioned, since I was 13 years old. And so I'd been, you know, doing a lot of children's music and things like this and children's concerts. And so... Part of what I was thinking of doing before this tech bubble bursted was, uh, you know, to take those funds and be able to go out full time and do our music ministry. And plus, with some of the companies I was working with, we helped launch the Infinity Division of Nissan, and and I was traveling a lot, I was away from my family. I wanted to do something that I could do with my family. And I, by this time, I had had, I see, I think I had. Uh, 
yeah, I had about five kids. So, you know, it was like they were adding up and, and I was, and I was kind of going, you know, I don't want to be one of those absentee fathers, you know, and, and my dad, he was a great man, but he was one of those guys. He was, he was always gone, you know, and it was, and it was real tough on us as kids. So, you know, moving into this music ministry, I was able to actually take my family on the road. We got a, you know, 40 foot uh, RV and, you know, we had a whole band. I mean, just uh, not everybody in the family, I actually had to bring in musicians and stuff, but we, and we traveled all around the U.S. And then we also flew to other countries to do concerts for kids. And uh, so that was a big focus of that next phase in our lives. Yeah. That's amazing. And I want to go a little bit deeper on that, if you can talk about that, because I interview a lot of people in the digital nomad space and a lot of people that are itinerant world travelers and that really put a higher priority on that. But I believe you are the first person that I have had on the Maverick show that has actually done extensive long-term travel with your family. Yeah. And with your kids. And that I think is amazing. And I want to go a little bit deeper on that and sort of just ask you about that, I guess, both logistically, but also, you know, if you could just describe how that experience was for you and the kids and the family and what they got out of that. And maybe let's break it into the domestic versus international because I actually want to talk about those separately. Sure. So, like the, for the domestic RV experience, can you talk about how that was for you and the family? Yeah, well, <laughs> that was definitely an education. Somebody actually bought this RV for us. So we thought that was really cool. We thought it was really nice. And 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 it was nice, but but we also had a lot of mechanical problems with this thing. And so we thought our ministry was to kids, but we found out that most of our ministry on, on this on these tours was to mechanics. And so we spent a lot of time <laughs> a lot of time <laughs> working with a lot of mechanics. I mean, Major things happening, you know, drive trains, things like this that were dropping out of this thing as we were driving along. I mean, it got us where we wanted to go. We had a we had a trailer we pulled behind this thing, like another ten foot trailer with all of our gear in it, and so we just had a, a ton of experience. It, but it was great. I mean, it was fun. It was crowded in there, and we all I don't know. It to us, it was like sort of a dream. It was fun. I always loved music. I always loved travel. Even when I was single, I traveled a lot. It was just a, a part of me, something that I, I just, I, w- I wanted to do with my family. And we started homeschooling our kids pretty early on in anticipation of the fact that we're going to be, we're going to be moving around. And so we're going to, we're going to teach them on the road. And that's really what we were prepared to do. We had all their books, everything was, you know, in the RV and we did that on the road. So it was, it was a great, a great adventure. That's amazing. And then how long were you doing the RV thing for? How many years did that go? Um, that was, a, oh gosh, we had uh, probably about uh, two or three years, yeah, of, uh, of uh, on the road. And, uh, and, and we, you know, we would also, you know, during that time, we'd take off and, and fly to places. And those were the, sort of the international trips that we were doing. But we would always mix it in. That's kind of the cool thing about homeschooling is you can, you know, you could like a geography lesson when you're on the road is just like great because you can talk about a place that you're going to be in a couple of weeks. We'd teach all about the founding of the country. We'd do Washington, D.C. We'd, you know, so the Grand Canyon. I mean, we could do all, study, you know, how these things formed, you know, geologically and everything. And when we got there, the kids were like, I know about this. I know what that is. We would talk about these things and it was really fun. So the kids could learn from the things that we saw on the road as well. That's amazing. And then when you started doing the international trips, what types of places would you go and what types of experience did you and the kids have there? Well, it was always something different. 
for example, we went to uh, Africa, we went uh, to to West Africa, and we went to a, a school there for missionary kids. And that one was just uh, my daughter and myself. My daughter, Ariana, was kind of, she was very uh, integral part. She sang with me. She also did hand motions along with our songs because, uh, you know, kids, it was a kids program. So we got them interacting with us on our songs and so forth. And so that was, a, it was a great experience. We ended up like meeting these, these people like just were fascinating. And uh, we had this, in fact, I, I came back with this handmade drum that this guy that makes these djembes that are like unbelievable. He's a surfer. Uh, he surfs and he sells these drums to, you know, to pay for his surfing uh, as he surfs all around the coast of, you know, Africa. And it was a beautiful thing we took back with us, but a wonderful experience. We also went to, to Russia. Russia was, was intense. We went to orphanages, we went to schools, but the thing that hit me the hardest was uh, going to a, a, a children's prison. And there are children's prisons over there, which just uh, just kind of broke our hearts, but we, we, you know, we got to interact with the kids. It allowed us to to really spend some time with them, not just to sing for them, and that was just very powerful for for both of us. And my daughter and I would always have to we'd have to work with somebody before we came there to to translate parts of our songs into the language, the local language. And we went down to Georgia, you know, not Georgia like in the U.S. here, but the, the Georgia that's uh, was a part of Russia. And we thought they would be singing in Russian, and you know we just got an education really quickly. Is no, they don't. They don't like Russia. <laughs> they don't like people to speak Russian. You've got to learn their language. And so, so, so we would. We were constantly, you know, just working on practicing on our songs, trying to get as close to the the actual language that we could, even though these were not languages that we were trained in. It was pretty crazy. That's amazing. So you would travel around and you would play primarily children's songs. And did you say that your daughter would sing with you? Yeah. At the performances? Yeah. At what age was yeah. she? Yeah. She was like, I mean, she started with me when she was like six or seven years old. Her sister was two years younger than her, actually three years younger than her, uh, Vienna. And so they would both get up there and they they were just part of the team, part of the band, you know. And, and she kind of grew up on the road. So it's kind of interesting. Not only did they get the experience of you know, sort of the education and the stuff that we were doing with the homeschooling, but they were part of the band. So they, you know, they're, they were hauling equipment. They're, you know, they're roadies. They're, you know, they were like everything. We had a merch thing. So we were selling t shirts and we had all this other stuff. So they were part of that. You know, it was, it was a very much a family deal. It was an experience like a lot of kids don't get to know. I mean, playing for audiences of thousands, sometimes just, you know, being up in front of people and, and being very comfortable doing that. And uh, it was pretty cool. Wow. That's so amazing. So, you know, looking back on it now, how would you describe what travel, you know, international travel and all those cultural experiences and everything, what did that mean to you? And what do you think it meant to your kids? Well, it really opened their eyes. Sometimes people feel, especially in a situation like that, you're homeschooling, they're, they're, they're sheltered. But I think our kids got more exposure to the world and the people that live in different parts of the world, that they have an understanding that is in a depth of understanding that uh, very few people have, let alone children. And I think that that was something that really changed them in many, many regards. I mean, they we saw a lot of things that were also really tough things to see, went to some real difficult parts of the world. And they you know saw people 
die. They saw people that were suffering. They saw a lot of things that were pretty tough for a young kid. But when I look at who they are today, I see their hearts and I see that these these are just, you know, amazing, you know, young men and women that that just have a sort of a global perspective, which is really interesting. And I think it's really neat that they had that opportunity. And, uh, you know, that, that's one thing that they share with me a lot, too, is dad, you know, I, I would never trade those years for anything. That's amazing. And then from there, what brought you to Haiti? Well, it's interesting. I have seven kids. I had five around that time, two of which were older, which are actually with us when we were on the road all the time. But one day I just went to my daughter. She had a just this jar of coins that she had been collecting, and I wanted to find out what this was all about. And we used to partner with a lot of organizations when we did these concerts like World Vision and Compassion International, groups like that. And she ended up sponsoring a child with Compassion International, and it was a child from Haiti. You know, and I told her, I said, you're going to sponsor the kids. You're going to have to, you know, support them and do it yourself. So, you know, you, whether you do little chores to earn the money or whatever it is, I, I wanted her to really feel, you know, the, the depth of it. And, and she just totally got into this and started researching Haiti, finding out about Haiti. She went on these websites. She would look at orphanages and she'd see the kids that were in these orphanages and memorize their names. I mean, she was just obsessed with Haiti. And one day I asked her what this jar of coins was. And she said, dad, she was kind of reluctant to tell me because, you know, kids, they don't want to be, you know, have somebody, you know, make fun of what their, what their decisions are or what have you. But she just said to me, dad, I, I'm, I'm going to build an orphanage, a hospital, a school, a church in Haiti. And I said, really? Okay. And she's nine years old. Okay. When she's, when she told me this and I said, wow, that's awesome. That's great. But you know, back in my mind, I'm a dad, I'm, I've seen kids go through different stages. I figured, well, next year she's going to want to be president. Next year she's going to want to do something else. And, and, but she never waned in this. And she, and, and an opportunity came up for us to do concerts in Haiti. And so we said, yeah, let's, let's do it. Ariana could see the place that she, you know, has a heart for. And so we, you know, we went over there, we played for schools, we played for churches, we played just all over the place for for kids and families. And it was such a powerful experience for all of us that when we were through the concert, we were flying back from Haiti. My wife says to me, she goes, you know what? I think the plane's going the wrong way. And I'm going, uh, really? I said, I'm not hearing that. <laughs> I was like, I was like, I was moved by everything, but I was thinking, oh man, I don't know that I could live in this place. It's a really hard place. But all these incidents happen. I could go on about what happened, but Basically, we were brought back to Haiti to work. Uh, we we had, when the kids had really struck us with these these kids living on the streets. Some of them as young as three and four years old, living on the streets. Okay, no parents. This it just it had an impact on all of us. Well, we had there's this one orphanage of of uh, street kids that we were really touched by, and we we heard that they were in trouble. We flew back to try to help them out. And in that process, that's that's where my heart got pulled into this place. And I said, you know what? I think you're right, what you said to me before, that I think we're, we are we're meant to be here. So, you know, we were in the middle of all kinds of things that we were doing. We were doing that, you know, doing another album. We were in the midst of all this. We just shut everything down. We sold everything we had. And we put our whole life into, I think it was like 14 
Rubbermaid bins, and we hop on a plane for Haiti, having no idea what we were going to do, but we were there to rescue a handful of kids that were in trouble. You know, then twelve years later, we were still there. The orphanage still exists today. Uh, we're not there, but there are kids there that have grown up and and gone on and led great lives and and so forth. And the work is still going on there. That's so amazing. I was just sharing with you, since I knew you were so involved in Haiti, that we as well at, at Maverick, you know, one of the things at Maverick Investor Group that we do is we donate 10% of all of our net revenue before we as partners and owners take anything out of the company at all. That's so cool. That yeah. That's so cool. Yeah, we donate yeah. that to causes that are important to us. And a lot of those are international. Some of them are also domestic as well. And we try to give back in many cases to the real estate markets that we're buying rental property. And we also donate to causes, you know, in those local areas in the US. But we also, donate to international causes. And so, you know, we had donated to this one orphanage in Haiti, right? And we had, you know, done that. And then when the hurricane came through in 2016, you know, we had heard that it it ripped through right through that area. And then we got word that had actually blown the roof off of this orphanage. And so these kids, these kids were basically, you know, didn't have a place. And so Valerie and I, my business partner, Valerie and I were like, we said, call down there right away and ask how much money do they need to fix this immediately? <clears throat> and they said, well, about $7,000 would get the roof back on immediately and would fi- build the whole thing back up and would be able to bring all the kids back in and then would be able to totally restore it. And so we were just able to just fire down seven grand like that day. Awesome. And then they rebuilt it wow. and, and had it all back there. But, you know, we have that history as well. My my business partner, Valerie, had, you know, studied abroad there when she was in college. And so there's a, you know, we sort of have a lot of love and appreciation for all that. And, and so that was really cool to hear that connection. But you know, in hearing your story, I, I want to ask though, you know, the story about your nine-year-old Ariana doing that much research and becoming that passionate about Haiti before she had ever been there is extraordinary. And I just want to ask, what was her like when you got there for the first time and she had done all this research and she had learned all about it and this was her her passion and her focus? What was that experience like for her when the plane touched down? Well, it was pretty amazing. We had a whole team with us. We had a group of people from our church. We had, you know, our, our family and we had kind of trained them to sort of support the the music effort that we were doing and so forth. But when we got there, they didn't have tarmacs at that time. And so you literally you take the stairs uh, off of the, the plane. You're walking. She walked down off of the, the stairs and she literally got down on her knees and kissed the ground. She goes, Daddy, I'm home. Wow. Yeah. And you want to get goosebumps even just saying that because it still touches me to this day that it was pretty powerful that I I knew that she was serious at this point. That's amazing. And so then once you decided to move there and to transition there and base yourself in Haiti, which went on for 12 years, can you talk a little bit about the organization that you were building and the type of work you were doing there? Yeah, our focus was really the street kids. And so when we first started, we had 12 boys that we had rescued actually from another orphanage that had imploded. And so we we started with these 12 boys and and, and formed a boys home. And uh, but as we were we were very plugged in, in the streets. We were on the streets every day and we were, you know, just trying to find out one where these kids came from did they have any family you know we're always trying to to see if if you know there's a better place we didn't want the kids to have to live in a home if they had a, a home to go to but most of them 
they were on the street because their parents either didn't want them or they didn't have parents. And as we were out there, we also encountered uh, little girls that were living on the streets. And that just broke my heart. And, you know, some of them as young as six and seven years old and just the, some of the horrible things that were happening to them. And they used to come up to us because they knew we had a boy's home. And they said, can we come to your home? Can we live in your home? And we said, honey, we, we don't have a, it's a boy's home. We only have for, for boys. And, you know, we just, it just, it was breaking our hearts. And we were just, my wife and I were just praying every day saying, you know, God, you know, please make this happen. And uh, somebody gave us a donation because they, they knew that this is something we wanted to do. We were able to open a girl's home. And just to, to go back to those girls on the street and, you know, usually we'd give them food or we'd take them, you know, with us and we'd go to a restaurant or something, we'd feed them or whatever, but it was always temporary. And we were always scared because, you know, there was a lot of trafficking going on, a lot of abuse that was going on. And so to come back to them and to say, hey, you know, we have a home for you guys now. And it was just awesome. And so, and that's where it started to expand. We got a girl's home, a boy's home. Yet those were growing and the populations for both groups were growing. We uh, ended up opening a school. We opened a medical clinic first to help our kids and then to help the community. We had a feeding program for all the kids that we couldn't take into our home. And we were feeding you know, hundreds and hundreds of kids a day, every day, you know, to just to, to just to try to help the kids in that in that area. And then we you know, we were concerned because there's two types of orphanages in Haiti. One's called a creche. That's where you like adopt a baby out of. People would go to a country and they say, I want to adopt somebody from China or something. It's like that type of an adoption. And then they have what's called an orphanina, which is what we had, an orphanage. And they don't have foster care like we know it here, where you know kids can live with a family until they're eighteen. So in the orphanages there, they, they the kids will grow up there until they're eighteen years of age, and then they they have to leave the orphanage. But a lot of them were were just horrible places, and they were like businesses. But I mean, businesses where the people didn't really care. They kept the kids sick so that people would visit there, and they would get money donated. I mean, it was just horrible things that were happening. And we saw this and, and it just broke our heart. So so ours was that that kind of place where we'd raise the kid up until they're 18. So we tried to, during that time period, try to do everything we could to help those kids to have an advantage. I mean, this is a country with 80% unemployment. So even though we educated them, we, we taught all the kids uh, that there's a the native language there is Haitian Creole. So they already knew that. The schools teach in French. So they learn French in schools. And we taught them English. And my wife also speaks Spanish. So there's some that also pursued Spanish. So our goal was to have these kids go through here to finish school by the time they're 18, to speak four languages, to learn computer skills, could can do uh, you know, Microsoft Word, all the Word products and uh, Microsoft products, it be and to be equipped with some sort of skills so that they could have a business when they leave there. Now, they could go to college too, and we would help them support them in that effort. But a lot of times, even if you get a college degree, there's no guarantee in that country you're going to get a job. So, so not only do we we had these we formed what are called micro businesses that we launched a bakery, a silk screener. We had internet business. We had um, jewelry. We had 
gosh, what's the clothing, you know, sewing and that kind of thing. And so these are all businesses where they could learn the skills. And then we would teach them the business aspect about how to run a business so that they could launch off of one of our incubators, go maybe back to their village and be able to, you know, open a bakery in their village and know how to run that bakery. And they'd have the support of our, our home base bakery. So to, that would help them to, to grow it. And so, so we, we moved into a lot of different areas in, in this process as as the as the the organization grew wow and i know that through your work you actually attracted the attention of both cnn and oprah winfrey yeah yeah it's it's true um well it was really interesting with the oprah winfrey well i'll, t- well, I'll tell you first let me tell you about the cnn cnn was there during the earthquake now we were there in that devastating earthquake that happened in in haiti and it was the most frightening thing uh that you know, i'd ever experienced in my life i mean hundreds of thousands of people died in in this earthquake and we had a little medical clinic like we had mentioned it was just a little clinic though area cl- kids would come that had malaria or they had worms or whatever, we'd give a medication or whatever. But when the earthquake happened, most of the hospitals just collapsed. People didn't have anywhere to go. So the people in the neighborhood were coming to our clinic. I mean, it was frightening when the earthquake happened. Places were collapsing all around us. Our orphanage just miraculously was untouched. Not a single person died in our orphanage or any of our employees or any of our employees' homes. I mean, it was, and we had. 70 employees at that time. So it was amazing that we were just under this protection, but it was such a difficult time. And if you can imagine, we had, we had two nurses that were at our clinic. One had just arrived a week earlier and then the earthquake happened and it looked like a scene from like night of the living dead. I don't know. That's a kind of a, I hate to, you know, kind of trivialize it, but we were literally sitting at our orphanage outside and people are carrying people in, limping, people missing limbs, people with heads split open. I mean, everything that you could possibly imagine. And they're coming to us because they didn't know where else to go. And we had this feeding program that I had mentioned earlier, and we had all these tables from this feeding program. So we just started laying these tables out, putting sheets on them, and starting to lay these people down in our boys' home. Okay, we had a, a like a little soccer field next, to a, a sort of miniature soccer field next to our. It was actually a converted tennis court that we used for soccer, and we just started laying these these tables out and putting kids and adults and and all these people on these. And we had a medical triage uh, that was set up. And for the next six days, we saw over 500 patients that came through. We miraculously got people that came in there that, that knew what they were doing. We had one guy who came, knocked at our door. And, you know, in the meantime, we're just cleaning wounds or trying to do whatever we can. Our, our kids in our orphanage are there, you know, taking care of these people. And, and these two nurses... And there was a guy who knocks on our door. And again, you know, we're just praying like crazy, just saying, Lord, send somebody here. And they, a guy shows up with his wife and says, hey, our house just collapsed down the street. We don't have anywhere to go. Can we help you guys? You look like you're doing a good work here. And we said, sure. What do you do? And the guy goes, oh, I'm an orthopedic surgeon. I go, oh, I mean, wow. I mean, everybody on the list of people that I wanted to come, right there, I mean, this guy was at the top of the list, okay? Because we had people that needed amputations. We had some serious things that had to be done. And this guy and his wife was a nurse. And so yeah, it's just like, this is wonderful. Come in, you know? And I mean, over the next course of days, I mean, he was treating people. He, in our 
kid's kitchen and the boy's home. I mean, they were amputating people. I mean, there was no anesthesia. They had to use like knives from that we had there because he had no real surgical tools and stuff. So it was a it was an intense period of time. And during that, we were getting a lot of attention. The media was coming, and we had all kinds of international media. All kinds, and CNN was one of those. And that was where uh, Soledad O'Brien, who was working with CNN at the time, she showed up and wanted to know what we were doing and why were we doing this. You know, who were we and all this. And, and anyway, she just got really into everything that was happening during that time period and ended up you know going back to CNN and saying we we need to do we need to do a story on this place and and she um, came up with the the name called rescued and it talked about you know what what we did at this at this orphanage and what happened during the earthquake and it ended up being like an hour special that uh, they did wow and what year did that air that was uh I think it was like 2011, 2012, right around there. And sort of along those same lines, my daughter Ariana, early on before we even moved to Haiti, she had wrote, she wrote to Oprah, okay? And Oprah had like, she had never been to Haiti. And it was really interesting. She, Sean Penn had a big operation going on in Haiti at the time. And she was going to come and see Sean Penn and see what he was up to and, and everything. And her producer was doing research and they looked in their archives and found this little email that my daughter had sent to her years before the earthquake even happened. And they basically contacted us and said, hey, we want to meet Ariana. We want to you know, talk to her and, and see the you know, see the orphanage and her dream and all that. So, so Oprah came out and she had just uh, launched this new show uh, called the, uh, the, I don't know, the first chapter or something like that. So she came out and did a special along with Sean Penn and, and, and us, you know, the special on what we were doing there as well. So it was, it was a, quite an adventure. That's amazing. So how much time did you and the family get to spend with Oprah in person? Well, she sent her team over uh, in advance, and that was like we spent like a week with her team. She showed up, and it was a one day deal. But she took a lot of time to to talk to us, and 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 uh, you know got to know my whole family really well, and was just extremely wonderful with her time and very generous uh, as well. So it, it was it was a great experience. That's amazing! Wow. So. I mean, a lot of people want to know, you know, what is Oprah like? I mean, it's interesting, you know, a lot of times in the lightning round on the Maverick show, I'll ask, you know, if you could meet one person that's living today, have dinner with one person, spend time with one person. A number of people have said Oprah Winfrey, Uh like of anyone in the world, that's who they would choose. And so I feel like that's a really extraordinary experience. Can you share anything about how that was, you know, how she was, you know, what that experience was like actually getting to do that? Because a lot of people dream of that. Yeah, you know, and I didn't know what to expect because for the most part, we knew she was just going to fly in. She was going to do that thing and she was going to do the Sean Penn thing and then and then leave or what have you. Uh, and there's also Donna Karan, I think it is. She also, Donna Karan? Yeah, she had some things, that uh, jewelry and stuff that she was making and clothing that were being made in Haiti. So she, she was also the third person that uh, she visited while she was there. But I, I just, she is, you know why she's so successful just when you meet her because she talks to you like you've known her forever, you know? And so it's like, it's like an old friend and that's, that's how she, I mean, even with my kids, you know, and uh, even with the kids in the orphanage, the same thing, she just comes in there like she's 
Auntie Oprah or something, you know, and and you, everybody just feels real comfortable with her. And so she, she's definitely got a gift. And uh, it was really neat how she made my family. She interviewed all of us. She spent time with us. But she never do we ever feel that there was, a, you know, it was something she had to do. She seemed like that there's no other place she wanted to be in the world. And I think that kind of ability to have when you're interviewing somebody, and she's been doing it for so many years, you could you could just see it come through. And then was it an episode that aired then where she and you were on the same episode? Yes, yes. It was a part of this uh, next chapter is the name of it. it was uh, Yeah. And so it was about a, probably about a 30, 40 minute segment. Yeah. Amazing. And is that viewable today? Can we like find a link and put it in the show notes or? I know I've done a search on it and, and I know that you can, you can see parts of it for sure. We have a copy of the actual, you know, a whole episode and same with the CNN one, but you can see parts of them, you know, just by doing a YouTube search uh, for the most part, you just look up uh, Ariana's dream, or you can look up, you know, Ariana Manicero uh, and Oprah, you know, and, and you'll find it. That's so amazing. And then, so then you stayed in Haiti for 12 years. Right. And you mentioned that that was challenging on different levels. Obviously, the natural disaster and everything you just described, of course, sounds insanely intense. But then in terms of, you know, regular life in Haiti as well, you know, that I'm sure was also challenging at different points. What was that like, though? It was very intense. I'm going to couch it, though, with this. And this is really the truth. You know, I was came there in my 50s and you know it was for me it was uh, or my late 40s and and it was like the best of times the worst of times you know like dickens says you know it it was some of the most intense things i've ever seen in my life death and disease and suffering like i'd never seen on any scale before in my life but the people the people are amazing, absolutely amazing. I could tell you story i could i could talk for hours on the people of haiti just brief little story, you know, a lady that uh, we went into a place called City Soleil, which is one of the poorest ghettos of anywhere in the world. It's huge area that's just so toxic. I mean, you know, just raw feces on the ground and we're, we're walking out there to, to try to help, you know, some of the kids in that area. And the, I remember we were handing out little sandwiches and stuff. And we saw this little old lady and she just looked like she's burial alive. I mean, she looked like a skeleton with skin. And we walked over to hand her some sandwiches and I saw her and she had this little tin hut that she lived in. And then we just kind of moved on like we were going on and just trying to help people out. And I looked back and I watched her and she goes and she sits in her yard and I thought she would sit down and eat her food. But she just sat there and then she she just starts calling the kids in the neighborhood over. And, and as they came over, she just stayed lined up and she took these little sandwiches we gave her and she just tore one piece off at a time, handing it to each kid as they were there. She never took a bite of the sandwiches herself. And that, that to me, said more about the people of Haiti and the beautiful people of Haiti that we, we love so much today as, as well. That's what that country's about, I believe. And what do you think in terms of your kids growing up there for 12 years? What impact do you think that had on them? How was their experience? Yeah, it was hard. It was hard. We lived Unfortunately, you know, there was a lot of conflict in the country when we got there, um, a lot of kidnappings. My wife uh, and daughter were driving and, and uh, almost got kidnapped in the process of being there. How did that happen? Yeah, well, they were visiting um, a pastor that we knew, and it was getting late. And we knew during this kidnapping time, you don't travel at night, but it's starting to get a little darker. 
And so our our driver was saying, okay, we got to go now. It's time to go. And my wife and daughter and then another lady was with them. And they were starting to drive back on this road by the airport. The cops would always have like a little, you know, little stops that they would do. They'd, they'd be checking cars and so forth. And there was a, a little roadblock ahead and our driver was looking at it. We got in this line of cars that were waiting to go through this roadblock. And he said to my wife, these guys are not cops. They were dressed like they were cops, but they were not cops. And so he just kind of let the car in front of him go a little bit further ahead he started to inch the car up and he said, okay, when I say duck, you guys duck. So he starts to back the car up and then he starts backing into the street and the guys see him and he's, so he's whipping the car out in reverse and the guy comes out and he sees them. He goes, stop, stop. And he just stepped on the gas in reverse, swerving the car from one side of the road to the other. My wife and daughter and the other lady laying down in the car and they just opened fire on us, like with AK-47s on them. And they just, they're just, not a bullet touched them, not a bullet touched the car. But they got away because of the, you know, our driver who worked with us. And, and he was one of our guys, that, that our directors at the boys' home. He, you know, his insight. And this is what these guys would do. They'd pull people over. And then if they were people they wanted to kidnap, they'd either rob them or they'd kidnap them. That was the closest we came, but a lot of our friends, you know, were kidnapped and, and released, and it, it was it was happening all the time in Haiti. Wow. So reflecting back on it now, how do your kids view the whole Haiti experience and stuff in terms of their development and upbringing and everything else? How do they reflect on it? It was hard. It was hard. Uh, part of it is because they saw a lot of death. They saw a lot of things that were really tough, but they also had an amazing experience because they were working with us. They were working right alongside us. You know, when we're in the medical clinic and we were helping people, they were there you know, handing us uh, sutures or handing us whatever we needed to help the doctors. They were also, you know, I, I mean, in our feeding program along our other kids who were out there serving the other kids in the neighborhood that, you know, that weren't in our home. And they were, so they, and, and all that, but they learned they became fluent in, in French, they became fluent in, in Creole. You know, they had this this depth of understanding that a lot of people didn't. When they came back to the States, it was tough to adjust. But the experiences I talked to them today as adults that they just, you know, they talk about is just, I mean, this was one of the best times of their lives. I want to take just one minute out to let you know that in addition to hosting The Maverick Show, I am also the co-founder of Maverick Investor Group, a real estate brokerage that helps you buy turnkey rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets from anywhere. So these are single family homes sometimes two to four unit properties, and they're either brand new or fully renovated, and they already have tenants and local property management in place. So you get all the benefits of owning the deeded real estate, that physical house, the hard asset, without the headaches of being the landlord or the rehabber or needing to live near the property. So I want to offer you a free consultation if that sounds interesting to you. To learn more about it, you can just go to themaverickshow.com slash consult. And now, back to the episode. That's amazing. So I have to ask... What is Ariana doing today? <laughs> well, how old is she, first of all, and what is she doing? Okay, she is an amazing girl. When she got there, when we moved there, 
she just went to work. I mean, and she, you know, we were doing our own thing, trying to run an orphanage, trying to figure out how we we're going to fund this thing. And, you know, uh, we, we had no idea what we were doing, but she was like out there collecting kids on the streets and literally just ministering to them. She would take um, these girls that were on the streets, you know, that lived on the streets and she'd bring them in and she'd talk to them about, you know, how to take care of yourself. So you don't have to, you know, give in to the, these guys that are putting pressure on you and all these things. And that she found babies, you know, that were like just abandoned and saved lives of these babies. We'd literally take them into the house. There's always a baby or somebody that was sick living in our home, you know, that we would take care of. And um, most of those were, people that were brought in by, by Ariana. And so, so she starting at age 12, you know, that this was her life for a really long time. And as she got older, you know, it was, it was kind of these things that it's hard to explain, but when you open your door and there's always somebody out there, there's either a mother with a baby saying, take my baby, you know, and, and we would usually have to respond with, Hey, why are you giving us your baby? You don't love the baby. You don't want the baby. And she says, you know, mother would say, no, I, that's why I'm giving you the baby because I love the baby. The baby's going to die with me. And so I would work with the moms. My wife, Suzette, would work with the moms and we would help them to, you know, to figure out why, why, why couldn't they have the baby? And usually it's because they didn't have any money. And so we would teach them how to get a street business going, a really simple thing that they could sell on the street, but they could support their kids and even send them to school eventually. And so we would coach them and, and help them launch a little business. In some cases, the kid was sick and they couldn't handle them. They couldn't handle the medical bills. We would take the kids in in those cases sometimes. And we'd even hire the mom to work in our orphanage. So there are a lot of different situations, but every day we saw something. And a lot of times it was death. A lot of times it was suffering. It was really tough. So, you know, 12 years of that is pretty intense on anybody. And I, even with my, my daughter, she needed a break. She needed to come to the States to just to, just, just to kind of rethink and, and, and understand what was going on. And all of us love Haiti. All of us have a heart for Haiti. My wife got cancer when she was there. And so we had to fly back to the States. She had treatment. We came right back to Haiti, you know, and it's a tough place to live. What we didn't understand or what we didn't really see until we come back from Haiti, that we all had, you know, PTSD, like, man, to the nth degree. And, and so it kind of hit us all after we left. And just a, an example of what that was like for me personally, it was, you know, the kids, I'd, I'd treat them. I'd go to like the local market and, and there weren't really like potato chips. Well, there were, but they're like really weird potato chips they had there and stuff. They were usually for the Dominican Republic or something. And they were called, you know, orange outs or something weird. And, and so, but it was always like a little treat. I'd bring home the kids and they're all excited. It was a big deal. Okay. And when I came back to the States, one of the first things I did is, you know, they, I went to the market and I'm going there to, and, and we, we were kind of, I was having trouble sleeping. My wife was having trouble sleeping. We're kind of going through something we couldn't quite figure out. I went in this to buy some chips. Okay. The kids wanted some chips and I go into this market and on both sides of me, on either sides, every kind of chip you could possibly imagine, you know, from like gluten-free to, you know, vegetable-based chips to everything. And it was just, and I was just sitting there staring and I don't know how long I was there, but it felt like I was there for half an hour and I just started crying and I just started crying. I couldn't stop crying. And it was just a part of this, you know, what we had on us that, you know, that we had kind of buried because to live there, you know, if you let everything get to you that you see, it, 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 it would just devastate you. So we were always in this 
place where we were just kind of you know that much above the fray. So it was it was an intense thing to come back and, and adapt to. So my you know my when my kids started growing up and moving back to the states, you know that was the time we knew it was it was time for us to come over and. You know, and there are a lot of other situations, but we found some great people to kind of step into our role there. Uh, we're still big supporters and active and supporting our, our ministry over there. But you know, we're we're back. We're older. It's it's you know, it's it's a tough place. It's not a place for for people that are old, like you know, like us, right? You know, so, but we we're still you know we're still very much plugged in. That's amazing. That's amazing. So is Ariana back here in the States now as well? And what is she doing with her life? She's still serving people. That's what she does. You know, she's serving children, uh, people, special needs. I mean, that's, that's her heart. And so she's just, she's just, amazing girl all my kids are are amazing but she was a special special kid that really just has a heart for helping people incredible so how did the real estate investing thing start with you because you started that in haiti before you even came back to the united states how did that sort of come about and how did that you know get on your radar even to start investing in u.s real estate from Haiti while you're still there. Well, it was really interesting. I, you know, we were nearing the end of the time we knew we knew our season was was coming up, and so I was trying to figure out, okay, what am I going to do when I go back? You know, I'm not somebody's just going to retire and collect seashells and stuff. I mean, no, I I, I love doing stuff. I love being active. But I had no idea what I was going to do. And I didn't picture, you know, I'd go back there with this weird resume that's got everything from rock and roll bands to working with Haiti orphans, you know, on it. And, you know, and I was like 60, you know, so what am I going to do? You know, go, you know, I picture myself in a blue vest at Walmart, you know, handing out cards. I go, I go, I got I to figure out what I'm doing. So I started looking at things and, and I'm working with the kids there, trying, you know, teaching them stuff. We had this internet business I told you about. And I said, well, let's experiment. Let's try something different. Cause I'm kind of also thinking for me is why don't we do sort of a, like a drop ship thing, you know, like with eBay and, and Amazon. And so we started doing it, just started experimenting around. And I found a good model that I liked. I started doing it and we were just making bank, you know, it was like, this thing has really taken off. And these kids, okay, average person in Haiti gets paid like a dollar a day. It's, it's a crime, but it's, it's horrible. But I had these kids, you know, my orphanage, you know, 12, 15 year old kids that are making like 300 bucks a month, you know, and they're like having a blast, you know, selling bedroom sets, you know, on eBay, you know? And so it, we were just having a kick with this. And so I was, I was getting, you know, I was thinking, well, then maybe this is what I'm going to do, you know? And then, you know, I got the kids going doing it, you know, in the orphanage. So I I started to do it. But then I got, it was like a Christmas season and it was, everything was frozen, you know, the movie Frozen. So we had all these things. Anyway, all my vendors were out of the items and my and I got all these bad reviews because I couldn't respond quick enough. I'd give them a refund. I'd say, oh, I'm sorry, you know, but they didn't care. And so I, I got kicked off of eBay. And when you're kicked off of eBay, you're pretty much off for life, you know. So there went that model. And I'm just kind of looking at this, going, what am I going to do, you know. And I got this inheritance check I didn't expect. And I got it. And I, I'd been very heavily in the stock market, especially tech stocks from my background. And I didn't want to put money in the stock market. It looked really volatile at that time. And I had, you know, the chairman of the board of our organization as a real estate investor. I said, maybe I'll just invest in some real estate passively, you know, and uh, just, you know, I don't know, maybe I'll, I'll buy you know, REITs or maybe I'll do something like that. And I decided to buy some turnkey properties. And so I did my research, started looking in this whole deal. 
I hopped on a plane from Port-au-Prince, went to Atlanta, and then I went to Memphis, and then I flew home all within about five days. I came back at three properties, uh, two single-family homes and a duplex. And next month, I'm getting checks in the mail, right? It's going right into my account. I'm going, this is this is very cool. I go, you know, maybe it's not just an investment, you know, that I, maybe I could do this and this could be like my my job or whatever. And that's where I started to look at this and I said, you know, okay, I, this makes sense to me. I, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna start to expand this. I'm gonna grow my portfolio. And I had part of my dream in this was I'm gonna raise money to be able to help. One of the things we want to do in Haiti is to build this village for our kids, and you know, that has all the stuff that we do. We rent like seven buildings, you know, there, but we wanted to own this land to to make this, you know, their place forever type thing, uh, you know, or at least a, a place that you know the kids could grow up and other kids could come into. And so that's what was my idea. And that put me on this quest, you know, that uh, moved me into this area. And as I'm doing this, okay, so I've got my friends that are like my age. Some of them are approaching retirement. Some are in retirement already. And they're saying, what's this real estate stuff you're doing? So I started, you know, they'd email me questions and ask me how I did this and how I did that. And emailing just got really kind of crazy. And I said, well, I'm just going to blog it. Okay. I'm going to take some of these questions. Everybody's asking, I'm going to blog. You guys can read it and that'll be easier. And and that's kind of how this this old dogs REI network got started. Is while I'm doing this, and I'm actually going through, I'm, I'm sharing sort of the good, bad, and the ugly, you know, and and everything. They get the whole truth, nothing but. And then one of my mentors at the time told me, "Hey, you should do a podcast." And I was real reluctant, didn't want to do that. And uh, but he finally said, "You know, th- this would be a good move, and a lot of good reasons for it." I jumped into it feet first, just you know, crazy. And, and it was awesome. It ended up being really, really great. And so now I had the podcast, I had the blog and, it, you know, I was able to reach a lot more people with this message and, and it's been awesome ever since. It's been great. That's amazing. So how, after you got the first three properties, we, how did you then go from there? What was your scaling process from there to acquire more units? Well, the first thing I thought is, okay, if, and I was looking at, I sort of, you know, came up with sort of a random, how much a door, you know, am I making really cash flow free and clear? And one thing that was interesting is the three properties I purchased, they all were about the same price, but my duplex was making me twice as much as my other properties. So it was just kind of like a, a dumb moment, right? You know, it's like, well, if I've got this, you know, this duplex, you know, what would happen if I had a fourplex or an eight? unit or a 16 or whatever. And so that was basically the approach that I took going into it. Wow. And so from there, how did you start the educate and build the educational piece of it? Because I think it's a really interesting niche that you have developed in terms of specifically educating seniors. Because there's a lot of real estate investing educational stuff out there. Anybody that types it into the internet is going to be overwhelmed with the amount of people that have something to say about real estate investing. But I think your niche is really, really interesting. And I want to just sort of ask you maybe to speak to that and, and also to give some advice in that realm, because I think that people who are approaching or are already retired are really looking to try to figure out what is the best thing to do. 
with their nest egg, with their money that they've worked for their entire life to create exactly what you said, right? How do we create passive income? How do we pass down something to our kids and all that kind of stuff? So what is the advice that you would give to seniors or people approaching that retirement age for how to think about that? Yeah, I think the 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 big thing for me was that there was a, a lady I read about in the LA Times, actually, and she had retired. Her husband had passed away. The money that she had received after her husband died, she bought an RV and she was traveling all around you know, the US in this RV, but then she, her social security wasn't really helping. And I, I know what it's like to travel around the country in an RV. And I know that repairs and things like that could just wipe you out. And especially if you're just living on social security. And I just really felt for her, like the story is just, you know, how she got stuck. She goes from like carnival to carnival. She's 80 something years old working these carnivals. She's like the carnival circuit. And that's where she's making her money to try to survive. And I go, that's no way to live, you know, at 80 in, in her 80s. The missing link is cash flow. She needed cash flow, passive cash flow to, to get that going. And there are the people that we talk to, there, there's a wide realm of people. There's the people that are that are the, the smart ones, uh, unlike myself, that that have you know this huge nest egg that they want to maximize and they want that to last their whole lifespan. And now people are living longer. So you've got to really make sure that you're going to make your funds last, right? So there's that aspect. And those people might be a, a passive investor. They may buy into a syndication or they may they, they're just looking for a good return on their dollars, but they don't want to have to mess with, you know, toilets you know, tenants and trash type stuff. So, but then there's those that kind of like, like myself, like to learn something new and be active in it too. And so those are the active investors. So there's those, those two real distinct audiences. And so my focus is always cash flow for either group. You know, if they're going to, if they're going to take their nest egg and they want to get a good return, you know, generate enough return where you don't really even have to draw from the nest egg anymore. Right. So that you're, you're getting your 10, 12, you know, 15%, whatever it is. Right. So that's really been the focus is, you know, we're everything, we're, everything is about, we say, you know, cash flow is king here, you know, and that's really our focus is, is get something that's going to generate for you passively so that you can do the things you really want to do in your retirement. You know, let's, let's not spend all your time being a landlord, but, but use that money so you can travel, so you can spend time with your grandkids. So, Hey, you could, you could help pay for the wedding of you know a, a daughter or or granddaughter or something that you know they may never have dreamed of having you know those types of things yeah i think that's the really important mindset shift right and when we founded maverick investor group we for you know since 2007 have been helping people buy performing cash flowing rental properties in the most investor advantaged us real estate markets which have changed over time right and we help people to continue to build that portfolio which of cash flowing properties which builds their passive income stream greater and greater and greater and you know, we're able to help them diversify and buy in different markets and all that kind of stuff. And I think, you know, the mindset shift is that, you know, we are really socialized, I think, through not coincidentally either, right? When I say socialized, I mean, there's a lot of very, um, <laughs> very well endowed financial institutions that want to tell you that you need to give your money to a financial advisor or to someone, right? Kind of thing. They have a financial interest in telling you to do that. But the whole idea is, oh, build up this nest egg and and create a giant finite sum of money by the time you retire. And then basically hope that you die before the money runs out, 
right? And you're just going to spend it down and hope that you die before the money runs out, right? I'm like, mm, that doesn't sound really <laughs> enticing. Like, even if you're able to kind of like get that nest egg, like that doesn't sound very motivating. But with cash flowing rental properties, you're putting that money into an asset that's going to cash flow to you passively and throw up a stream of income, which can then cover your living expenses without you having to draw down your nest egg. Exactly. Plus, and you've got the equity. If you're buying the right market, you've got that too, which is that added bonus there. But what's really interesting, you, you mentioned this, I've had like last two guests or within the last month, I've had two former CFPs, okay, certified financial planners that totally went over to real estate. Okay. One guy just let all his, his licenses to sell, you know, stocks and securities just expire. And one guy, he was similar to your situation. He was working with the retirement, you know, people retiring 2006, 2007, going gangbusters. And then all of these, you know, that when the market crashed, all of his clients were just like, you know, stuck high and dry. They lost so much money. And he, actually started moving them into real estate investments and he couldn't do it with his license. So he had to, he had to let his, his, his licenses expire. And, and now these guys are still doing this today, working with people and giving them a real retirement, you know, nest egg that isn't going to, you know, totally lose its value. It never will. Real estate's always going to be worth something, right? It may go down in value, but it always goes back up. And so, you know, that's that's where a lot of these guys made their shift, which is, I thought, were really interesting. Yeah, I think it's really significant. And it's really important because when you start understanding the difference between real estate investment property as an asset class compared with securities and other things like that. I mean, most people think about investing like, oh, I'm going to buy a stock and I'm going to hope and pray it goes up in value. Yeah, right. And that's all I can do. Mm -hmm. And if it does, great. Well, best case scenario, it does. And then you sell it and then you got to pay capital gains tax and all that other kind of stuff. And you're left with some kind of net, you know, maybe. But if it goes down in value, you're up the creek, right? Whereas with real estate, you know, one of the things that we teach and we help people to do, whether they're young, new investors or they're retirees, because we work with all of those age demographics and each people have different needs and buying criteria, you know, is that we help people to buy based upon real estate fundamentals, right? So you should make your money when you buy and then not have to speculate and be worried about, nervous about, you know, is the market going to go up? Is it going to go down? You know, and because that's always this common question, right? What do you think the market's going to do? Is it going to go up? Is it going to go down? Is it going to go down? Right. I was exactly. like, listen, yeah. what you need to do is create buying criteria where you're not really too concerned with that. Right. So when you buy your cash flowing rental property, you buy it and you're locking in a stream of income because you're buying it in a market with high rental demand and, you know, qualified tenants and, you know, a healthy economic area. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, if the market goes down or if the market stays the same and it doesn't go up in value, let's say, and it goes down instead, well, guess what? You're still getting your monthly cash flow. Every single month, you get your residual cash flow into your account. And oh, by the way, guess what else? If you got a mortgage to buy that property, even if it doesn't go up a dollar, your tenant every single month is paying down your mortgage principal for you. So if you just sit there and hold that property, your tenant will eventually pay off your entire mortgage principal and you will own that property free and clear, even if it doesn't go up a dollar 
in appreciation value, you are still building equity right. by doing that. Plus, you're collecting the cash flow every month. Plus, you're able to take all the tax benefits. If you own the deeded property yourself and you haven't bought a REIT or some securitized thing, you can depreciate the value of your property and take that as a basically a phantom loss against what would otherwise be taxable income. So you're saving money there as well. So, you know, I tell people, listen, do not speculate. You know, you shouldn't worry that much about what is the home price trend going to do as long as you're buying right from the start. Exactly. And that's a an aspect too that we as like again old dogs here, okay, is that is a little bit different and that's why we we sort of have our show is because the needs are different. You know, for example, I I don't recommend that people get into debt any more than they have to, because in fact, if you can avoid it, avoid it altogether because you don't want that, you know, to continue the next 10, 20 years. A young guy or a young gal, you know, that's that's part of your leveraging and that's how you're growing your portfolio. But we have to, to take a little different approach because our time span is a little bit different. So th- there are different strategies that we try to address on our show and in our blog and so forth that, that you know, you can do so that you're not going to be stuck, you know, uh, having to pay off or have somebody else pay off your your mortgages. You really want to try to reduce that that debt aspect a little bit more so that you can be free and clear and you can enjoy that uh, extra, you know, bonus or everything's just, uh, you know, cash flow at that point. <laughs> so, and what are and what are some of the strategies that you recommend for seniors in particular that might be distinct from, you know, investors at different phases in their career? How do they achieve some of those things? Well, there are a lot of, you know, one of the things that we talk about too is is accelerating your your um, your paydowns on your mortgages, and so it, a lot of it depends on who's carrying your mortgage and so forth. But you could take a thirty year mortgage and you could pay it off in six years if you want, and there are strategies that you can use to do that, or you can just pay cash for properties. And, and uh, I know a lot of people that are doing this strategy with single family homes, and they're you know they're they're sort of using the Burr method, but that approach can be a, a great way to be able to do that. You still have the loan you're going to create that you're going to have to pay off. But some people, you know, again, if you can get into a property for cash, I think, you know, that, that money that you have sitting in that nest egg is not likely to get the as good a return as you can get from buying a property for cash. Let me ask you this now, just in terms of the podcast, because you have done a lot of episodes right now. I was listening through some of your episodes and kind of going back to some of your older ones. And it's really, really awesome to see the consistency. Can you talk a little bit about what the podcast is, what the format is, and you know, basically what people can expect when they come to listen to it? Well, sure. You know, one thing we write up front is we're not selling anything. You know, I'm not selling coaching. I'm not selling any anything that's people can listen to the show without fear they're going to be pitched something, okay? So I say that right up front only because when I first started, I was following every rabbit trail that was out there. I mean, I've got, you know, bookshelves full of these uh, at-home, you know, programs that uh, on flipping and wholesaling. And I mean, I just, I fell into every trap there was. And I want people to know that they can come there and just, you know, they're just going to learn. And we're going to have fun too, because we joke around a lot on our show. But the idea is to is to get educated. So I have a guest on Monday and, and usually it's a, it's either a fellow old dog that can share their story of what they're doing, or it's some expert in a certain area. It could be a, a you know, a Robert 
Kiyosaki type person. It could be an attorney that uh, you know talks about um, you know some of the tax advantages. It could, it could be a lot of different people. And then on Fridays, I do I share my story, you know, because I'm involved in a lot of different aspects of real estate. We do Airbnb, we do a lot of different things. So I share my my little experiments that I try. I mean, I'm only a relative. I'm still a newbie. I consider myself a newbie. So I share, you know, the things that I've learned. Hopefully, people won't repeat my mistakes, but they'll also learn a lot. And so, and are all zero in on certain topics. Like I'll just have a a Friday program on just cap rate. What's cap rate? Why should you care? You know, those kinds of things. So, and then we write articles as well. So people can go back and they can research and find additional information. So that's, that's pretty much the format, you know, that I work with, but the idea is to, there should be enough stuff on our website already. I mean, close to 300 podcast episodes and probably 150 articles. There's enough stuff there that you can get free information that can help you get started and to do it wisely and to do it well without having to pay, you know, $20,000 to some coach to do it, you know. Yeah. And I know that most of your investing uh, you choose to invest out of state. Yeah, because I live in Southern California. Exactly. Well, exactly. I mean, and this is significant though, because I think, you know, one of the things when we founded Maverick Investor Group that we wanted to be really clear in terms of offering as a value proposition is we wanted our clients to be able to invest in the best and most investor advantaged real estate markets, regardless of where they live. That's so smart. Right. That, yeah. And so I want to ask your opinion on that and your experience on that in terms of, first of all, why do you invest out of state, right? How do you select a advantaged real estate market? And then secondly, since it is out of state, how do you do your due diligence on those properties? Yeah. I say to anybody that lives in a place that has the right numbers, you're better off doing it in your backyard. If you're you know, in Ohio, there's a lot of great places and a lot of great properties, for example, in Ohio that you could do. But if you're not, if you're in a, usually the coastal areas, you know, it's it's tough. You know, the 1% rule uh-uh, doesn't work here. You know, a lot of these components that we have to assess whether a property be a good investment, it just, it just ain't happening here in Southern Cal, I'll tell you. So I just really launched into understanding emerging markets. And one thing, great thing about real estate is there isn't really a national market. Okay, you know, people say there's a national, but there really isn't. It's a bunch of regional markets all over the country. And you have some that are just beginning to move up that bell curve. You have some that are already, you know, starting to decline, like here in Southern Cal, prices are going down. You know, you have all these different markets. So finding those emerging markets and the, there's a lot of things you look for in a matrix, but basically, uh, you know, it's it's population growth. You know, it's it's a strong local economy, low unemployment. You know, you look at rent uh, rent ratios and things of this nature that show you that this is a good rental market for you. And and I and I like emerging markets because you're also looking for equity growth too. For for example, I bought a, 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 another duplex. It was one of the first things I bought. I bought it in Indianapolis. Now, Indianapolis isn't what you would normally look at as an emerging market because it's, it's what's called slow and steady. It's good, good market. You're always going to cash flow. It's going to go up and it, but it's going to go, you know, at an incremental amount, it's a small amount, but you know where to buy. You can, you can buy something like, for example, there's a lot of growth going on, especially with millennials in downtown areas. I mean, they want to be in a place where they don't have to have a car, where they can, you know, they can live close to work that, yeah. And so these areas are booming right now in certain areas. Well, Indianapolis is no exception. 
And I bought a duplex there for $50,000, $55,000 in an area called the Bates Hendricks area, which is close to that downtown area. Um, bought it immediately. Tenants, I just, bought, I had no problem getting tenants in, on both sides of this duplex. But the, the added advantage was, is that in that, that period of time that I purchased this, within two years, the property had quadrupled in value and it was like 200000 from 50000 to 200000 in a couple of years. And that was, again, buying right, buying in the right place. So I was able to take out, you know, do a cash out refi, take the, those funds to, to buy another property. And and that you know, th- those kinds of things can help you. And I'll, again, as an old dog, I, I, I kind of say don't leverage, but but you know, again, I have a pretty aggressive plan. So for me, you know, it made sense to be able to do that. But if you don't, it's great. Hey, you've got all this free and clear. I was paying like initially, you know, with, with like three hundred dollars, and that included P and I, you know, the, <laughs> you know, and I was going, this is this is great, you know, and I'm, I'm bringing in, I think, I think it was at that time, it was, it was probably around 1400 a month in this little place I paid $50,000 for. That's what you want to try to find, if, ideally, because as you grow, your, your properties grow in value, they grow in equity. You also have that legacy. And I've got seven kids, so I think a lot about legacy because I want to be able to have something I can hand down to them, you know, when I'm gone. And real estate is like one of the best things you can pass down. And how do you conduct your due diligence on an out-of-state property? When if so, you know, somebody looks and says, "Yeah, Indianapolis," which is, by the way, a market that we've done a lot of business in. You and I have the same awesome. assessment of a lot of the advantages in that market. But let's say somebody's in California, for example, and they want to buy in Indianapolis, or they're in wherever they are. They could be outside the country and they want to buy in the U.S. in one of these markets. If they don't live near the property, how do you conduct your due diligence on the property? That is very crucial, very critical. I mean, there's there's the analysis of properties that you do. And again, that's where I mentioned like the 1% rule. You know, you look at a property, for example, $100,000 property, you hope that it'll bring in $1,000 a month, right? And so you, you have certain criteria like that, that, that you just kind of look at at first. But the, but the most important thing are the boots on the ground. Those are the people that you're going to get working with you. So they can come from many different areas. I use like bigger pockets, for example. When I'm going to go into a region, I, I try to find other investors in that area. I try to find realtors in those areas. I try to find people that that maybe I can have contact with. Your most important person on your team, like like when you move into a new state, you have to have an attorney from that state because they know the state laws for that. Um, you need to have a property manager because you're not there. Somebody has to watch over that property. And then there's there's other ancillary people, maybe a handyman or people that are going to help you know repair your property. There's you know title insurance. There's other things too that you want to link into. But but the most important is the property manager. That to me. I find, especially in turnkey, for example, that uh, that's got to be really important for you guys. Is somebody there that you know has their clients' best interest in mind, so that they're they're yeah they're helping the the tenant out, but they're helping you out too. And so finding that person is I have a whole screening that I do that takes quite a while. And, and it's, you know, it starts with just, uh, again, uh, trying to get word of mouth referrals. Those are your best from other investors, you know, and trust. Um, it could be your attorney in there. It could be other people that you really know and trust. You start with word of mouth and then you start, you start screening. You start, uh, you know, I do things like find out what properties these people own. I'll contact, you know, the, the, uh, you know, people, tenants in the properties. I mean, I, I get, I get really 
down and dirty, but because I've, been, I've had some bad experiences with property managers. And that really is your, your key to success in those markets. So yeah, there is a lot of due diligence that has to be done. And I think that the more thorough you are, the less likely you are. It doesn't mean you're guaranteed that you're not going to have problems, but you're, you're going to have a lot less problems. Absolutely. Bill, at this point, are you ready to move into the lightning round? <laughs> oh, man. I guess so. I guess so. <laughs> Let's do it. All right. The lightning round. What is one book that you would recommend that has perhaps most influenced you or you'd recommend that other people read? Ken McElroy is a great guy. He's a he's works with Kiyosaki. He's one of the one of the the poor dad, uh, rich dad, poor dad guys. He has two books that are that are both great. There's the ABCs of real estate investing, and then there's the Advanced Guide. Uh, I personally really like the Advanced Guide because I think that there's some stuff in there that most people aren't going there. So that that would be the one. I think the one book that'd be really if you're really serious about investing, you you want to get a hold of. Of all the podcast interviews that you have conducted at this point and all the real estate inter- investors that you've spoken to, what is one or maybe two pieces of advice that you have learned from your interviewees? I'll tell you, some had just had big impact on me. And it really did change a lot of my thinking because initially I was looking at, you know, there's this mindset, especially when the market's hot and, and I'm buying multifamily. And so multifamily is this sort of, this is three, five, seven year hold mentality. But I interviewed this guy. He wrote the, literally wrote the book on syndication. This guy named Sam Freshman. And he's a real old dog. And, but what a neat guy. I went down to his office, downtown LA and this guy is still active. He's somewhere in his 80s. He didn't give me exactly where he is, but he's somewhere in his 80s. Comes into office every day, suit and tie, whole nine yards. That lunch I had with him was one of the most enjoyable experiences. Just a character. He's just a character, a really neat guy. And it was really funny. I said to him, I, you know, I asked him, actually, I had him as a guest on my show too. And I asked him, I said, I said, what was the biggest mistake you ever made in real estate, you know? And he, he he looked at me and he just said, selling. <laughs> and I said, okay, you're a guy that's like a wheeler dealer. You got, you know, you're, you're selling properties. You know, he used to go into downtown LA. Okay. You imagine this. He'd buy like a 40 story building in downtown LA for like a million dollars. And then couple months later, he'd sell it for $2 million And he was going, look it, I made a killing, you know? And he would brag about it and stuff. And now he, he kicks himself because the same bill is worth $100 million, Okay? Why didn't I just hold on to it? You know, it's really funny. But I, I learned more from old dogs, you know, I think uh, because they, these guys have been there, done that. A lot of the guys that I know that have been doing this for a long time are not selling. You know, they're not waiting until the top of the market and then sell out of the top of the bell curve and selling. They're saying, hold, hold, hold. And uh, that was that was one of the most profound things that, that I have heard. It's a simple thing, but yet it really had a big impact. I think that's great advice because with real estate, you have so many profit centers, yes. right? And so when it goes up in value, if you were to sell and try to capture that capital gain, that's only one profit center. But if you do that, you've lost the asset and you've relinquished the other four profit centers, yes. right? You're no longer getting money from that. And so I think that's really uh, astute advice. Okay, next question. What would be your number one tip for seniors or people approaching retirement age 
who have not yet invested in real estate and are looking to get into their first property? What's that kind of obstacle or hurdle or you know that, that a lot of people are trying to overcome? What's your tip for them to get into that first property? We're a unique group, okay? Because if you've got kids, the kids are moving out, you've got this big house you're probably living in, right? Some of them, well, it's paid for. I want to stay in this house, right? But the the reality is you got this huge place. You're going to have to take care of the, the gardening. You're going to have to take care. You've got a pool. You got to clean the pool. You got to, the wear and tear. All these things are going on with this property. Okay. I would recommend seriously thinking about house hacking. Okay. And, and actually there's a, another old dog I had on my show. Great guy. Wrote, he wrote a book called the, the unofficial guide to real estate investing. His name is Martin. And uh, his wife got cancer. And so it just made, it really scared him when he was younger and he had young kids. And he's kind of going, oh man, what if something happened to me? You know, she luckily, you know, she was, she was fine. She did great. She's doing wonderful today and everything. But, but it made him rethink what he, so he actually went out and he bought an apartment building. He sold their house, which is worth like a ton because it was in Southern California here. And he had enough to put a big, huge down payment on an apartment building. And it was, I wasn't, I think it was a huge apartment building. Maybe it was like eight or 10 units or something like this, but he bought it and had like an owner's unit. And so what they did is not house hack, but apartment hack. Okay. So they basically bought this apartment with the idea that this is where they're going to move. Okay. So they sold their house. They moved into one of the units. The the people living there don't know the, the owner, so they don't bother them. Okay. Cause they have an outside property manager that does it. They live in this place rent-free. Now it's like completely paid for. He gets this incredible income from this place. If ever anything were to happen to him, his wife could live there. Uh, not only does she live rent-free, but she gets this great income just from this one property. And she has no worries. She's got a property manager. If things, plumbing breaks down or whatever, the property manager takes care of it. So some people do house hacking. They'll buy a duplex. They'll live in one unit or even a house and they rent out the other rooms, right? But this I thought was really unique because this is a guy who thought ahead and now he's got their retirement and they don't stay home anyway. These They travel all the time. They're out and about. They're doing things. You know, it's not like they're just sitting home. They're, they're, they like to be active. So it's a great house. They've got three bedroom, you know, apartment and everything's wonderful, but they have no worry. They have no expenses. That's amazing. What is, other than your own content, what is one blog or podcast that you listen to that you'd recommend to people? There's a lot of great ones out there. I heard this Maverick one for the, you know, just recently. And that, one, <laughs> that one kills, man. That one kills. I love it because I'm an entrepreneur and I, I love the, the stuff you have on it. But I think the one, the general one that I went to that was just kind of a lifesaver because, again, I was buying all these programs and I wasn't really learning. It was, it was bigger pockets because bigger pockets, I've networked, I've met people in the areas that I'm in. That's how I've made a lot of key contacts. Like, like if you're going to move, let's say you're going to buy property in Dayton, Ohio, you know, you can go on there and find all these people from Dayton, Ohio that know that market so well. So you can say, what about this East side place that I'm looking at? And you'll, they'll be real blunt with you, man. Or you don't want to go to that place. That place is a war zone, you know, but you wouldn't have known it otherwise, you know? So you make, not only do you make good contacts, there's tons of content. I write a blog. They're a weekly blog. A lot of guys, they're all tons of content there and it's all free. So I'd say biggerpockets.com. Okay, last question. What is one tip that you have for raising amazing children for parents? Wow. 
I mean, just a big part of it is trial and error. You know, it really is. But I, I think too often we kind of write off kids. I mean, my daughter is nine years old and she ended up swaying our whole family into selling everything and moving to Haiti. And that was one of the best things that ever happened to me. I would have to say that give your kids the benefit of the doubt. Their little minds are amazing. And, you know, a lot of times we don't think that they have the depth and, you know, well, you know, it's only, you know, I just want to play with them. I just want to, you know, try to really get in a conversation. And, you know, it's kind of sad. It's kind of tough. I mean, I've seen, I love technology and I, you know, I've seen a lot of it. I, I, I think I had one of the first laptops. It was a, called a K-Pro. It was this big box that sat on your, your lap that would probably burn you after a while. But I mean, I've seen all these, these developments and probably the saddest thing is these little screens that we just get locked into and, and our kids get locked into. And one of the neat things about being on the road, being with your kids and doing what I did. Not everybody can do that. You can't all go on the road necessarily with your kids. But I think a lot of the guys you talk to, that is happening. You need that quality time with your kids and, and you need a lot of time with your kids. Kids, I've never seen any kid I've talked to, you know, including my own, that, you know, where you feel were you satisfied with the amount of time you had with your parent. Most of them will say, no, I would have liked to have more time. And, you know, even me, my dad's been gone for years now, but, you know, I would have loved to have more time with them. And I think, I think that's it, you know, you know, whether it's, you know, let's take the, the screens and put them in a box and let's just have that time together. We're really big about family dinners. That's a big thing with us. And we sit around and we'll argue politics or we'll talk whatever it is. And we have a blast because there's that real honest, you know, we don't, we don't allow any screens there. You know, we it's, it's just, it's just interaction. Tell me about your day. You know, what's one thing you learned today that you think is going to have an impact in your rest of your life, you know, things like that. And we just engage, man. They, they, that's what they want, you know? And, and unfortunately, you know, we're kind of competing with Instagram and Facebook and all those other things out there. And that's all. <laughs> that's an awesome answer, man. Well, Bill, it was so amazing to have you here today. I want to make sure you are able to tell people all the different ways that they can find you, definitely how they can listen to the podcast, check out the blog, and if you're on social media, how they can follow you or how they can get in touch with you. Sure. Well, probably the easiest way is our website. It's olddogsreinetwork.com and dogs is spelled D-A-W-G-S. Okay. Yeah, we're hip, right? <laughs> Real hipsters <laughs> here at 63. Uh, but that's like the main thing. You could you can contact me through there. There's a contact page. Uh, you can reach me. It's really easy. Or you could just write to me at bill at olddogsreinetwork.com and I'd be happy to, to connect with you and uh, be happy to answer questions. I, I do that all the time. In fact, once a month, I have this thing called Ask Bill, where I actually answer, you know, a lot of real estate questions from people. And so I, I love answering questions and helping any way I can. That's awesome. And then the podcast, how do they find that on the website as well? Yeah, it, it is on the website, but of course we're on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, all the regular places. And so they can just, whatever podcast platform you listen to, wherever you're listening to this episode on, in fact. Yeah. You can just type in, it's called the Old Dogs, D-A-W-G-S-R-E-I Network. Yeah. And it usually if you just type in dogs, D-A-W-G-S, there's, you know, <laughs> you, besides us and some hip hop guys out there, okay, <laughs> you're going to find us pretty easy. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, Bill, thank you so much for being here today. This was a blast, man. 
Oh man, it's it's a kick, and and thanks for having me on, Matt. It's been a blast just meeting you. And if you keep listening to Old Dodge because you're going to hear Matt being interviewed. Okay, he already agreed he's going to come on the show, so uh, we're going to have some fun with Matt. Okay? It's going to be awesome. I look forward to it. Thanks, Mel. Goodbye, everybody. Be sure to visit the show notes page at themaverickshow.com for direct links to all the books, people, and resources mentioned in this episode. You'll find all that and much more at themaverickshow.com. Do you know how to determine actual market rents and localized vacancy rates for individual properties at the address level? Do you know how to determine the strength of the rental market where your property is located and which direction rental rates are trending? Learn how at themaverickshow.com slash rent. This data has historically been difficult to ascertain, but now you can pull reports that contain all this information for any address in the U.S. And you can pull your first report for free at themaverickshow.com forward slash rent. Are you at risk for being underinsured on your rental properties? Or are you paying too much for your coverage? To find out, go to themaverickshow.com slash insurance and check out a free recorded webinar on debunking the 13 rental property insurance myths. Insurance can be complex and confusing, and there are a lot of myths that can get you burned when you least expect it. To learn more, check out this free recorded webinar at themaverickshow.com forward slash insurance.